Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, 2014 marks the 50th anniversary of civil rights demonstrations in St. Augustine that helped get the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed. I was there with those people. They lost their jobs, they had to leave town, and uh, they had babies to feed. And all the attention was going for the people of Maine. And those people left. And we were here by ourselves to struggle and try to carry on. We'll discuss Florida's government after the Civil War. The government essentially appointed um, military governors to, to govern the state until the state of Florida could adopt a new constitution. And look at the Third Seminole Indian War. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In the summer of 1964, the living was definitely not easy in St. Augustine, particularly for the city's African-American residents. After years of lunch counter demonstrations, picketing, and attempts to integrate whites-only beaches, civil rights activities in St. Augustine reached a climax as the world watched. Attention focused on the demonstrations in St. Augustine has been credited with helping get the 1964 Civil Rights Act passed. A sculpture remembering the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement in St. Augustine has been placed in the downtown plaza right next to the slave market where people of African descent were bought and sold as property. Barbara Vickers is president of the St. Augustine Foot Soldiers Memorial Project and was one of the foot soldiers herself. Yes, I'm history. I was a part of it. Yes, we used to march down uh, from the different churches and we had night marches and the night that they beat it, Andy Young on the corner there. I was there that night um, down under the bushes, uh, had a hedge down there, and we marched around. We couldn't come in the plaza because they had rocks ready for us, so we had to march around the plaza, and the bricks came here and there, and they just went zoop, by here, and zoop, and a lot of people got hurt that night, but I didn't get hit. Martin Luther King Jr. and members of his Southern Christian Leadership Conference called St. Augustine the most violent city in America. The night of greatest violence came on June 25, 1964, as peaceful African-American demonstrators in the same plaza where their memorial now stands were attacked with bricks and stones. Barbara Vickers says that she and her fellow demonstrators were constant targets of police intimidation. After the meetings, we would have to drive back to our homes, and I was stopped many a times going home, and uh, they wanted to know if I had weapons. And uh, they searched my car, and they found the crank, the car crank for the tire. And the police said I had a weapon. He said, I could arrest you for this. 
but hardly ever. They were doing all this to intimidate us and try to discourage us from going to the meetings. But nothing kept me from going to the meetings. I was there every meeting they had. During the summer of 1964, the civil rights movement in St. Augustine became particularly organized with the help of Martin Luther King and other national leaders, but the local foot soldiers were still at the heart of the struggle. Well, actually, um, I was slow getting into the movement. Uh, Dr. Haling, he lived across the street from me, and he was recruiting people for different things, and I was hesitating because I worked in the salon during the week. But when Dr. King came, and he was at uh, First Baptist, and uh, Dr. Halen told him he was short of people in the kneelings at the churches. And he looked at me, and he said, young lady, will you go? And there was something about his eyes, and it was just electrifying to me. And before I knew it, I said yes. And uh, that started me to go into the kneelings on Sundays. And... Um, Dr. Halen, we had to patrol his house, whether the boys did, rather, to protect them because the clans would come through every night. We slept without lights and whatever because they would shoot the lights out. And um, so that's how I got involved, and I was there until the end. Martin Luther King and his followers were known for their strategy of implementing social change through nonviolence, even in the face of police harassment and aggression. St. Augustine was the only place in Florida where Reverend King was arrested. A system had to be developed to provide help for peaceful demonstrators who were arrested in St. Augustine. Well, what happened when the kids were arrested, we were first a part of the NAACP, and um, they were slow. They didn't have the money to get the kids out, so when Dr. King came, he was SCLC. So that's when we switched over, and they managed to get money from somewhere to get the kids out. Yeah, Hank Thomas came. He was originally from here, and he went on to be one of the 1961 uh, Freedom Riders. And um, he was very active and whatnot. So when he came down with college students and they put him in jail, um, they said that um, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. sent money to get him out of jail. So there were different people that would send money to help. Concerns about racial injustices came to a head in the summer of 1964 when African-American residents of St. Augustine were excluded from the plans to celebrate the city's 400th anniversary the following year. Sculptor Brian R. Owens is proud that his work commemorating the participants in St. Augustine's civil rights movement will be viewed by people celebrating the city's 450th anniversary in 2015. I hope that a few years from now when St. Augustine celebrates its 450th birthday, that passers-by remember the name of the sculpture and just go home and Google it and find out more about it. It's not a depressing subject. It's an enlightening subject. Uh, The civil rights movement, it confirmed that we have what it takes to survive the childhood of our species and that that we have the tools at our disposal that we need to solve our problems. To many young people today, the civil rights movement of the 1960s seems as much a part of the distant past as the American Revolution. Brian Owens hopes that his sculpture will help people of all ages and backgrounds connect with the stories of the people who participated in this struggle. Yeah, the civil rights movement was a very real thing. Uh, Real people paid for the rights that we now enjoy. They paid for it with their bodies. They paid for it with their teeth, with their limbs. And uh, we do ourselves a favor when we come back and just for a moment reflect without feeling sorry for ourselves about remembering the sacrifice that people made just so, so that we could sit here and have this conversation. It's easy enough to say that, 
I think that each of us has to explore it on our own. Hopefully, this sculpture will be will be part of that exploration, uh, not just for us, but for the the people who are enjoying this upcoming birthday celebration and everyone after that. The sculpture will be here for several thousand years, and, and it will exist until it is intentionally destroyed. Hopefully, we'll reach a lot of those people. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was being filibustered in Congress as demonstrations were at their peak in St. Augustine. The images of segregation and violence coming out of St. Augustine are credited with helping to end the stalemate and get the legislation passed. Brian Owens became aware of St. Augustine's pivotal role in the civil rights movement as he began work on his memorial sculpture. Well, I prided myself at the time. Uh, I thought that I was uh, fairly well informed on the subject of civil rights. That turned out not to be the case. And it was as if someone had rolled away some giant stone and revealed a path to some new fountainhead of knowledge, and I've been totally absorbed in it ever since. I knew nothing about it. And uh, as I learned more, I went back to my old civil rights books and found St. Augustine as a mere footnote in history when so much had happened here. It was a revelation to me. The bronze sculpture that Brian Owens has created in honor of the St. Augustine foot soldiers of the civil rights movement has been placed next to the slave market in the city's downtown plaza. It's 675 pounds of bronze on top of 7,500 pounds of stone sitting on, uh, I don't know how much, concrete, concrete that's in the ground to keep it from, from settling. It takes a lot of effort to pull something like that off, uh, more than can be accomplished in a short period of time by one artist. So there were a number of people, myself naturally, but also the foundry that uh, cast the work and helped me assemble it, the people who brought it here, and the specialists who installed it into the ground. Uh, it's, a, it's a large undertaking uh, in view of the fact that you're trying to get it done fairly quickly. A 30-foot-tall statue of Martin Luther King Jr. is open to the public in Washington, D.C., King was present at the height of the civil rights struggle in St. Augustine, but the sculpture by Brian Owens honors the everyday people who participated in the effort, the foot soldiers. His memorial includes four bronze busts in front of a relief sculpture. Each of the people depicted represents many others who fought for equality in St. Augustine. The figures represent uh, a rough demographic of who was participating in uh, protests at that time. You have a, a relatively young white college student, a black male in his 30s, a woman, a black woman in her 60s, and then a black female uh, about age 16. And there were a lot of teenagers that were involved, particularly in St. Augustine, and didn't demonstrating here. And of course, uh, whites came in from elsewhere. Uh, there were whites here also that demonstrated. The whites also brought themselves here by bus to join in. So we, you know, it, we, had to, we had to tip our hat as best we could uh, to represent the people who, uh, who participated in this. On the day that the Senate voted on the 1964 Civil Rights Act, a photograph appeared on the front page of newspapers across the country showing civil rights demonstrators attempting to integrate the pool at St. Augustine's Monson Motor Lodge. And the owner of the motel went nuts, basically, or the manager went nuts, came out and threw some sort of acid into the water. 
uh, an asset that's used to clean or maintain hotel premises or the pool itself. But he threw a lot of it in the pool. That's a terrifying uh, thought to hold in your mind. But someone actually managed to take a photograph of it. And it was that photograph, along with others, that managed to make make their way out of the city and be seen by people outside of St. Augustine. Barbara Vickers is proud that the Monson Motor Lodge incident and other efforts in St. Augustine helped to get the 1964 Civil Rights Act passed. I think that um, acid in the pool incident really did the trick because they were filibusting and everything in Washington. And um, that picture went all over the world. And people was complaining about it and they thought it was the worst thing they had ever seen. Barbara Vickers says that many individuals participated in St. Augustine's civil rights demonstrations and that they all deserve recognition. Well, like Hammond Odom that night that we were down here, uh, he was blooded. At, uh, one of the rocks hit him in the nose, and um, if you saw him on TV, you was just wondering could he still breathe. And um, Mackey, did nobody know anything about it? Mackey was, I mean, completely blooded. I guess two or three bricks must have hit him at the same time. And uh, these people had to be taken to the hospital, and they refused to wait on them. And um, some of them, they had to go to Jacksonville. If it wasn't real serious, they just would doctor on themselves. But um, there was one lady with me, Sydney Harris, and she was about, I was 30, and she must have was about 90. And every night, she was there. She said she had to be a part of this. It was going to make a difference. She wanted to be there to help make a difference. And that's how these people felt, because when Andy Young came, he came to uh, to disband our struggle here. And uh, Jose Williams said, you can't do that. These people are ready. They're tired. They want to see freedom. So he marched with us that night, and um, we continued. Barbara Vickers is thrilled with Brian Owen's work. She led the effort to have the St. Augustine Foot Soldiers Memorial created. Because I was there with those people. They lost their jobs, they had to leave town, and uh, they had babies to feed, and all the attention was going for the people of name. And those people left. And we were here by ourselves to struggle and try to carry on. And I said that nobody know anything about how they suffered, and they suffered. And I just said I would love to see a monument of something to represent those people. And that, like I said, they was college students, they were white, they were black, they were young, they were old. And um, nobody cared about them. And it just kept on my mind. I just couldn't get them out of my mind. I think about people that uh, moved away. And some of them have never been back to St. Augustine. They refused to come back to St. Augustine. The St. Augustine foot soldiers mobilized their efforts when African Americans were excluded from plans for the city's 400th anniversary. As the city's 450th anniversary approaches, Barbara Vickers says that the foot soldiers will be there too. Yes, we will. We will be there to play our role this time. Yeah, we were left out last time, but not this time. We will be there. Barbara Vickers is president of the St. Augustine Foot Soldiers Memorial Project. Brian R. Owens created the memorial sculpture. It is on permanent display in St. Augustine's downtown plaza, right next to the former slave market.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, find great books on Florida history and culture, and check out our educational resources. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, you have here a journal for the first assembly of the state of Florida during Reconstruction. Florida was the third state to secede from the Union in 1861, and this was the first gathering of the government after the Civil War, right? Oh, that's correct, Ben. So uh, we're looking at the, the uh, actual printed journal, assembly journal, from the, uh, from the first legislative session in uh, June of 1868. So back in January of 1861, uh, the state of Florida uh, seceded from the Union and uh, joined the Confederacy, and from 1861 until 1865 uh, was a member of the Confederate States of America. The governor at that time, uh, Governor John Milton, uh, whose papers we actually have in, in the Florida Historical Society collection, was an, an ardent uh, uh, Confederate sympathizer. Um, he was a, a owned slaves and, and um, essentially hated the federal government. Um, in fact, in one of his last speeches, um, he mentioned that he would prefer death to reunion and, and in fact, killed himself uh, before uh, uh, before federal troops moved into Tallahassee. So in the next few years, up until 1868, um, the federal government essentially um, ruled Florida. It was, it was uh, under military rule. Uh, so the, the government essentially appointed um, uh, military governors to, to govern the state until the state of Florida could adopt uh, a new constitution, which of course included the, the right for African Americans to vote uh, and, and uh, to be free in the, in the state of Florida. Now, the governor during this Reconstruction period was Harrison Reed, and he had a lot of enemies. Yeah, that's right. Harrison Reed is an interesting guy. He was uh, born in, in Massachusetts in 1813 and really didn't move to Florida until 1863. Abraham Lincoln appointed him as a, uh, a tax collector for the, for the Union during that time. And, um, of course, he was later elected governor in 1868. So he was considered sort of a, a, a carpetbagger, you know, one of the first of these uh, northern or federally appointed uh, Yankees, so to speak, to come into Florida um, and, and gain some political prominence and sort of push this Republican agenda. Um, so when he, when he was first elected uh, in June, uh, when, when that election was officially recognized in June of 1868, his lieutenant governor was a gentleman by the name of William H. Gleason, who was another really interesting character in Florida history. But uh, Gleason became his, his lieutenant governor and, and was part of this uh, Southern Democratic uh, fraction in the state legislature um, that, that plotted to have Reed impeached. Um, and, and Reed was uh, sort of ahead of this. In fact, the, the Senate had, had moved to impeach him, but the legislature adjourned before there was ever any trial, so Reed just assumed that he was still governor. Um, but Gleason decided to uh, go ahead and appoint himself governor and actually started signing documents as the governor of Florida, uh, of course being supported by some of these, these uh, Democratic uh, uh, members of, of the Senate and the, uh, the Florida um, 
Supreme Court upheld uh, Governor Reed's position, and he was he was governor, uh, and, and sort of uh, dodged that first bullet. And then in 1872, uh, towards the end of his his um, governorship, his uh, second lieutenant governor tried to do the exact same thing, and the House actually moved to have uh, Reed impeached. Um, but again, uh, thinking that he that his lieutenant governor didn't have the right, he decided to reassert himself as governor. He did so. The Florida Supreme Court again upheld that decision because no trial was ever held. Uh, these people just tried to insert themselves into the governorship, um, and he was able to to finish out his term. And he left office in 1873. And you have here in the archive of the Florida Historical Society Harrison Reed's inaugural address, as it's recorded in the journal. That's right. And this is probably uh, the most interesting uh, part of, of the journal. It's on the very first page. And one of the first orders of business for the state legislator was Governor Rees inaugural address that, that took place on June 8th in 1868. Um, and he's, he's uh, talking directly to the people of Florida. Now, you have to remember that at this time, you have a lot of, of former Confederate uh, soldiers and, and uh, seamen who have, were may not have been from Florida, but have moved down from other southern states. And you also had a lot of, of Republicans who had been here who were sided with the union. So you had this very tenuous situation. So he's kind of reaching out to both parties. Uh, but it's interesting, and, and I'll read just briefly here uh, one paragraph that, that relates specifically to slavery. Um, it says here, bred to freedom and under Republican institutions, believing slavery an unmitigated curse, as well as a violation of human rights, a moral, political, and physical evil were ever tolerated, I most cordially congratulate you that it no longer exists to blight the fair heritage which God has given us here, and that the Constitution which you have adopted contains no germ of despotism to generate future discord. So again, he's he's essentially asserting, you know, very very strongly where the where this new state government um, uh, needs to sort of be heading, um, or what direction they need to be heading um, in regards to. Um, the, the emancipation of, of slaves and, and the, uh, the beginnings of, of Reconstruction in Florida. And Harrison Reed uh, tried to encourage cooperation among the two political parties of his time. Yeah, that's right. You know, during his, um, uh, his tenure as governor, essentially every public position in, in the counties in Florida went through the, the governor's office. So what he tried to do was appoint um, you know, a, a clerk of the county court who may have been a Republican, another office, Justice of the Peace, someone like that, would be a Democrat, and vice versa. So he tried to appoint um, uh, people into public office in every county in Florida to try and, and build from the ground up, essentially, a, a, um, a community of, of, of legislators who would sort of work together. And, and, it, and it sort of worked, you know, during his governorship. And, and I think he did his best, given the, the circumstances. But um, you know, it's it's an interesting part of, of Florida's history, and, and it's an interesting part of, of the uh, sort of American history after the Civil War. Cooperation among the political parties, what a concept. <laughs> well, thanks, Ben. Absolutely. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. The Seminole Indian War was actually a series of three separate conflicts in the 1800s. As Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com explains, the third Seminole Indian War lasted from 1855 to 1858. The cause, actually, I'd say of the third war was the fact that the government never finished the second war. That was John Missel, and he talked to me about the third Seminole War which has been long overshadowed by the first 
and Second Seminole War before, as well as the Civil War, which began a couple of years later. Unlike previous Seminole Wars, Missile tells us that the federal government was more prepared during the Third Seminole War. In the Third War, they knew what they were up against. Um, the biggest problem for the Army and for the government was the fact that they were never ready for anything. And even though, even though they were putting pressure on Seminoles for the Third War, when it actually happened, they didn't have enough men down here. And they also had problems in other parts of the country. Even when they sent the men down, they had to withdraw them fairly quickly because they had problems out in bleeding Kansas and with the Mormons out in Utah. So there were other things going on that they needed troops for. They were limited in what they could do down here. They had to rely on state forces mostly, and that was simply inefficient. Also during the Seminole Wars, we see the U.S. military adapt to the tactics of total war, which is the idea of bringing the war to the civilian population. Missile tells us about a military commander who would become famous during the Civil War, but got his start during the Seminole Wars as a proponent of this total war strategy. The, the classic example is actually in the Second War. William Tecumseh Sherman was down here doing these raids in the Everglades. And the speculation is always that that's where he learned about how to defeat a Native population, whether it was Native Americans or Native Southerners. You go in and you destroy everything to where they can't live anymore, and then they have to give up. Since the Second Seminole War, the U.S. military relied more on this total war strategy. Because the Seminoles had fled down to the Everglades, where it was, you know, very watery and just small hammocks and swamps and cypress heads that they were going to be hard to find, and the only way to defeat them was to go out in the Everglades with boat companies find all their fields, all their villages, and simply destroy them and give them no way to live so that they had to surrender. So when the Third War began, they knew that. And they brought in boats, they brought in men, and the biggest delay in carrying out that plan was the fact that they had to withdraw so many of the regular Army troops to send them out west that it took time to get the state troops organized and get them to start going down into the Everglades and hunting out these villages. But they had their plan, and they did put it into effect. It just got sidelined a bit because of other needs in the nation. Whether this strategy was successful or not is a question of debate, since many Seminoles remained after the conclusion of the Third Seminole War. The U.S. government wanted to declare victory, and move on to other pressing issues, as Missile reminds us. Uh, the Third Seminole War ended when the main leader, Billy Bowlegs, or Halata Miko, as he was properly known, when he finally decided to give up and emigrate to the West. His villages had been located, his crops destroyed, his people were beginning to starve, not all the Seminoles agreed with that, and many of them simply faded away farther into the Everglades, broke up into small groups, did their best to avoid the whites as much as possible. The government, on the other hand, Billy emigrated, took 
about 160 of his followers with him. So the government was happy and they could say the war is over. And they simply weren't worried about the few that were left. They were doing their best to avoid the white man. They really weren't going to be any trouble. And besides, this is 1858. The nation's beginning to fall apart anyway. This wasn't a big concern for people anymore. And within two years, nobody even thought about it. That was John Missel, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and get our daily Facebook posts at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokmarkle. Markle.